Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good morning everyone and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I'm the Adult Learning Programme Manager here. So I'm delighted to introduce today's talk, um, which is part of our Works in Focus series, which brings experts from around the world to examine iconic works from our exhibitions, um, giving insight into the work's creation, history and legacy. So today I'm very pleased to welcome Desmond Shaw-Taylor, who will be exploring a work from one of the leading contemporary artists at the time, Anthony Van Dyke, who was commissioned by Charles I. The work Charles I at the Hunt, or Le Roi à la Chasse, is considered one of the Van Dyck's most understated but most significant royal portraits of in Charles I's collection and can be seen in the central hall of our exhibition here. Desmond Shaw-Taylor is the surveyor of the Queen's Pictures at the Royal Collection and co-curator of the Royal Academy's exhibition Charles I, King and Collector. Prior to joining the Royal Collection, he was the director of Dulwich Picture Gallery. And I also wanted to mention that um, Desmond will be in conversation with Per Rumberg, who is the RA's curator, at the Queen's Gallery on the 29th of March, discussing royal taste and patronage from Stuart to Monarchs, Charles I to James II. So please check the Royal Collection website for more details on that. So without further ado, I'd like you to join me in welcoming Desmond Shaw-Taylor. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm going to be looking at this one work from various different points of view, but I suppose if I was just going to sum up the painting, I would, or what I'm going to say, I would just show that slide, that comparison, and um, say to you, these are two family portraits. They're members of the same family. You're look, looking at the rough style. What relation would you expect to, there to be between these two sitters, and I think you'd say, oh, that's going to be his great-grandfather. It's, it's something dating from a completely different era, but in fact, it's his brother. The um, painting on the left-hand side, as you can see, is Robert Peake, Henry Prince of Wales hunting, with a, an attendant, Sir John Harrington, and it's dated 1603. Uh, a similar subject on the right-hand side by Van Dyck is uh, some 30 years later. The, the younger brother depicted. And I think, well, I hope you, you, you will agree with me that there is a, a, a chasm which separates the imagery here. The painting on the right is so subtle, sophisticated, moody, suggestive, and the painting on the left looks so mechanical, dry, stiff, and old-fashioned looking. And so what I'm really looking at is how can, how can the uh, visual culture of a country transformed so dramatically in such a relatively brief span of time. But firstly, uh, just quickly about the, 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 the sort of circumstances of the painting on the right-hand side. Uh, quickly, the documentary circumstances, very, very scant, or almost non-existent. It is listed in a, uh, an inventory, or really a checklist, of paintings which Van Dyck painted for the king. So in Van Dyck's uh, papers, and he just calls it Le Roi La Chasse, the, the king hunting. Uh, so that's, uh, we assume that this is the picture he's referring to, there's nothing else like it. And then it turns up again in France in the 18th century. Between those two, there's no record of it. So it's pretty conjectural. We assume that it's painted for the king, and there are various theories as to where it might, get, where it might have hung, what it might have been intended uh, for or to decorate. But I think. What you can see here is at least the um, area of the subject matter of the picture. Hunting portraits of this kind are relatively rare, and they're quite one-off. They, te they tend to be um, quite individual paintings. And I think if you're trying to think well, what's happening in this, uh, the painting on the right-hand side, the, the Van Dyck, I think the, the peak actually provides a pretty good guide, and, and quickly to, to, to say what is happening on, on the left-hand side, and, and then by analogy on the right. Uh, this is the young Henry Prince of Wales hunting. He's hunting with a companion whom you notice is dressed in, in the same costume. So they're part of the, it, it, I suppose they're like a sports team. They're wearing the uniform 
sort of the uniform of equals of young companions, except that if you look closely, the um, Henry Prince of Wales has, has a little bit more gold thread on his uniform than Sir John Harrington does. So there is the, the, the status is maintained in that way. And also you notice that Henry Prince of Wales is wearing his hat. Sir John Harrington, his attendant, is not. And you notice that the relationship between them is also the postures is one of submission, one is kneeling, the other is standing. So there's a, amongst these companions, there is a sort of hierarchy. What is happening, um, probably, not absolutely certain, but probably uh, this is the moment in the hunt where the stag has been killed and the leader of the hunt, the, the, the owner, the nobleman, in this case the prince, tries the meat. So you kind of cut into it and say, is this a good piece of meat or a bad piece of meat? And presumably if it's a good piece of meat, you say it's for the royal table. If it's bad, you sort of give it to the hunters, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it's often said that it may be he's delivering the coup de grace, he's going to kill the stag. It's, I don't think it, um, it's particularly important. It's, what is absolutely obvious is that this is a ceremony upon which the most exalted person in the hunt presides, and the others serve him in that role. So he's, uh, Meanwhile, the actual hunting animals, the horse and the dog, can rest because they've done their work. And you can see in the background a liveried servant who would be not a companion but a servant, a different grade down, is looking after the horse. Over to Van Dyke, same sort of elements but just less, you know, dr dryly articulated. So you can see, I think, the same idea of uh, the companion. You see the man, who I will come on to in a second, is not a servant. He's richly dressed. Sorry, he is a servant but he's also of noble birth, uh, so he's wearing, he's got slashed sleeves, he's wearing silk, he's got lace um, on his, just above his boots, whatever you call lace when you wear it on your calves, and um, you know, he's dressed, in other words, very, very richly, but he is clearly uh, playing the part of a servant, he is restraining the horse, and that's the, obviously one of the characteristics of uh, sovereignty of monarchy is that your servants are noblemen. You're so exalted, are you, that you know, the people that wait at you at table are, um, are noblemen. Again, he's, uh, the king is wearing a hat. The um, attendant is not wearing a hat. We assume, again, that a, that a kill has taken place. That's why the king's dismounted. You can see his horse is, is neighing furiously, having no doubt got himself up into a great head of steam with, a, with the chase. The king, on the other hand, remains very cool, calm, and collected because he's, because he's a king. That's, that's one of the things that they can do. And um, we assume, again, that he is striding forward to perform an action of this kind, something which announces him to be the king of the chase. And then there's a little page boy in the background holding a piece of cloth. Now, I don't know exactly what that's for, but Everybody at the time clearly would have known what it's for. So I think you can see pretty much the same sort of situation. The, the climax of the chase, uh, the horse it's, has done its bit, uh, the, the king strides forward, or prince strides forward. Um, the attendant, actually Pear recognised him, is Endymion Porter, who was a, um, a groom of, of the, I think is a... Uh, I forget exactly the title, but Groom of the Bedchamber, I think was his title. In other words, an intimate servant of the king, uh, the way that kings have noble servants, like, like I explained. And you can see him on the left-hand side in a William Dobson portrait, He's quite clearly recognizable on the right, performing this quite menial office, of an, an equerry's office of looking after the horse. And uh, clearly differentiated in rank exactly the way that... Um, Peak had differentiated the kneeling figure, the standing figure. Uh, the Endymion Porter is differentiated by being the struggling, all hot and bothered figure, as opposed to the cool, um, elegant, not struggling figure of the king. The um, circumstances of the what might the painting have been, um, where might it have hung, what it might, what, what might it have looked like when it was hung. Well, part of an answer to this question might be uh, provided by paintings which are documented in the collection. We're looking here at uh, two paintings in the Bear Gallery 
in Whitehall, described by Abraham van der Dort in his inventory of 1639. A portrait of the king there, that's van der Dort's words and sizes. And next to it, a portrait of the queen. Uh, those are not van der Dort's words, but it doesn't matter. They describe the, that painting, certainly. And I show them with their relative sizes. The queen is, is considerably larger than the portrait of the king that it stood next to or hung next to. And above, you, you can just read, um, that is a description of a painting which is lost, which hung above the portrait of the queen. And uh, just in case you can't read it, I'll just say what, what, what the description says. It says, above Anne of Denmark's picture, Salviati, three angels flying in the clouds, holding palm branches and garlands of flowers, life-size, etc., etc. And it gives the dimensions, which is roughly the same width as the portrait of the queen. No other painting in the Bear Gallery had a painting above it. So um, what, what you have, in other words, is a series of full lengths of roughly standard size, and then one full length, which is absolutely extra size, much broader and also considerably higher in this sort of proportion. So it would have stood out, would have to go in the centre, presumably, of a symmetrical hang. It's further distinguished from the rest of the hang by having this painting of angels hung above it. None of the other paintings had angels. And the point of the painting of the angels is a joke, and I'm drawing attention to this just to show how carefully paintings were hung at this date. You can see that at the top of the Van Soma portrait of Anne of Denmark hunting, uh, there is a sun bursting through the clouds, so there's a dramatic effect of light, and there's a banderole across the sky with her personal motto on it, which says, La mia gloria da eccelso, my glory comes from the heavens. An idea presumably meaning my, I, my glory derives not from my rank, but from divine um, whatever. Um, blessing, I suppose would be the appropriate word. Uh, and in the background, you see the house Oaklands, which she owned near um, Hampton Court, and her dogs all have um, very, very elegant collars with the order of the garter. They're designed like the order of the garter, so, which I think we ought to sell in the Royal Collection shop as a sort of must have accessory. Um, but the point I'm trying, the, the interesting thing about this very distinctive hunting portrait of um, uh, Anne of Denmark hunting. You can also see, by the way, that she has a servant, a black servant, holding her very richly caparisoned horse. So it's, a, it's a, again, one of these one-off portraits. The very interesting thing is that it is a one-off size, and it is exactly the same size as Le Roi à la Chasse. So there's a, it's almost like there's a standard extra-large size for a certain type of hunting portrait, which Van Dyck copies from um, this uh, Van Soma. And there are two things I'd just like to um, draw attention to in this comparison between, between these two paintings. Uh, the first is the possibility, which again, um, which Per Rundberg uh, suggested, that there might be some actual relationship in where the paintings were planned to hang. So the um, what if, for example, the um, Van Soma were originally planned to hang at Oatlands, at the Queen's Palace at Oatlands, and was brought from there to the Bear Gallery, where I, where I uh, described it previously, or Van der Dort described it. And what if this portrait of the King was then painted in order to take its place, same dimensions, at Oatlands? Oatlands at this stage had become one of the residences of Charles I's Queen, Henrietta Maria. And just incidentally, in parenthesis, the, I think uh, a lot of royal residences were made over to the queens, the consorts both of James I and of Charles I. And I think this is quite an important piece of, it's not just you know, generosity out of the kindness of their heart, I think it's an element of royal diplomacy that if you marry the daughter of the French king, you have to provide her with some quite nice palaces in order to maintain your prestige with the French monarch. So um, Oaklands would have, Oaklands and Somerset House and the Queen's House at Greenwich, all these residences would have quite a lot of almost diplomatic significance. So it's highly, perfectly reasonably possible that this was planned as a hunting portrait for this hunting residence of Oaklands. And also it's 
perfectly possible that it's connected with perhaps with a portrait that might have been planned of Henrietta Maria, that the relationship with this uh, portrait of his mother might also suggest a relationship of, with a portrait never executed of Henrietta Maria. And what you can say more definitely is that um, hunting portraits of women are, can be associated with romance, perhaps slightly surprisingly to us. So, for example, this painting by Daniel Mitens, which is not listed in any of the inventories, but which was acquired by Queen Victoria, and that must have been a royal commission, shows um, Charles I and Henrietta Maria going out to hunt, and it is clearly a, a romantic um, activity, and you can see there's a little baby in the sky showering them with roses as they set off, and an amazing variety of dogs. I mean, I'm not a keen hunter myself, but I always thought you kind of settled upon one type of dog to hunt with, but this is like, this looks like, you know, those people that dog walk in Central Park in um, New York, but anyway, there you are, you get the, the, the romantic image of the hunt. Um, so that's the first thing, possible relations with Oatlands, with the possible relations with um, uh, uh, perhaps the idea of an informal, more uh, romantic almost cavalier portrait which might be intended for one of the Queen's residences and for a hunting residence rather from, than for a metropolitan palace possibility. The other point I'd like to make is just to draw attention to the element of symbolism in the um, Van Soma portrait of uh, Anne of Denmark which was so drawn attention to by those angels hanging above it, namely the, the symbolic light shining through the heavens and this banderole in the sky. And you can see when you look, look again at it how very dark the sky is and how dramatic the effect of light coming in and how the Queen's uh, face appears as a bright, shining light thing against a dark sky. So there's a beginnings of symbolism, possibly of... of sky of heavens, of this general idea of my glory comes from the heavens, la mia gloria di Chelsea, which we will come back to. Um, the next, so those I cover the sort of circumstances of the painting, its size, the sort of subject matter that it's dealing with, where it might have hung. Now what I'd like to now very quickly with with no specific evidence, but just generic evidence, suggest something about the working process which might have uh, given rise to a painting of this kind. And the first part of that process would be um, the artist's study in, be before they even work upon it. So on the left-hand side, you, we see a um, part of Van Dyck's Italian sketchbook. And this was just his study notes, which he took when he was touring around Italy in the 1620s, of paintings that he admired, and in particular, postures or ideas in a painting that he admired. And the, you can see these are two horses, the one top, uh, in the, uh, at the top, very reminiscent of the horse with its bowed head, rather sort of furiously um, calming itself, I suppose, after exertions, uh, which, which you can see there, which is derived from, you can see below, a Titian painting, now in Cincinnati, then in Genoa, um, which you can see he's taken it from this central figure here from the Titian. Uh, where you might possibly think this, this, is, this is part of his training. So he's just storing his mind with, with images which he, he might be able to use later. I don't think he leafs through the sketchbook to use them. I think they're just sort of sitting in his memory. But also in, in his memory there might be certain kind of characteristics about this pose. It wouldn't just be a pose. It would, be, um, it would have um, elements of narrative or elements of mood which would make it particularly significant at a, at a, for, for a particular composition. And you can see the idea, I think, of the Magi, both in Titian's version and in many others, is that the, the, the arrival of the Magi has, in this case, two halves. It's got the, the, the half on the right-hand side, which deals with the long journey and all the people carrying heavy bags and managing horses and generally um, exerting themselves. Right-hand side. Left-hand side, quiet, reverent kings approaching the Christ child, just like you've got 
it, it, it's as if outside the stable, everything is all noise and bustle and servants and horses neighing. And, and inside the stable is all calm and royal. And I think that relationship, the sort of two halves, you can kind of see in the uh, Van Dyke portrait. The, the right-hand side is all hot and bothered and labor and foaming mouths and, and uh, slightly awkwardly working attendants. Uh, the left-hand side is, all, is, is the king gliding serenely and effortlessly. And he's a king, so there's a sort of relationship. So one part of the working process, the, the sort of intellectual part, is storing the mind of the artist with ideas, uh, the early training, as it were. And the next part is a drawing. Uh, and uh, the, there are relatively few of drawings of this kind surviving, but the one on the left-hand side, which is included in the image, and apologies for Getty, I mean, both Getty's meanness in putting that there and my meanness in not paying to have a proper download to get it out of the way. But um, the, 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 the drawing on the left-hand side is in the exhibition and probably worked for a large number of uh, Van Dyck compositions depicting the king. So probably worked from, you know, one proper sitting. And then, you know, <laughs> uh, and I think that... The, the, the thing that I draw attention to in that drawing on the left-hand side is the um, way in which the features are made into a kind of pattern or shape. So small, uh, the things that might appear a little bit small, like the eyes, are made slightly larger. Um, and the things that might just seem too big, like the cheek, are made a little bit smaller, so that the form of the face is given a kind of repeating rhythm, which makes it sort of expressive and, and kind of clumpy in a, in a nice way. And um, that, that effect of shaping the features, I think you can see how it would work very well in sculpture. It, it, it's something that Bernini would do, to, to, so that every part of the um, marble would have a nice kind of shape and rhythm to it. Um, but it's not really often discussed in relation to portrait painting, but there is one phrase that Reynolds uses which suggests to me that it was something which was often discussed. Um, he, Reynolds is discussing, um, obviously a lot later, but it doesn't matter, he's discussing Franz Hals, and he says that he's very good at the composition of the face, and he says the features are well put together as the painters express it. So I think that's an idea that you, it, it, it's not that the features are like, that they're very recognizable, they're well put together. They've got a kind of nice shape, the way they all fit together. And he, the, the phrase, I think, is incredibly interesting there, as the painters express it. So this is a sort of thing painters talk about. You wouldn't understand it. It's a kind of, it's studio talk, is what painters um, say. And he, in that passage, he goes on to say, Franz Haus uh, is a bit careless when he finishes which is why he falls a little bit short of the greatest portrait painter, Van Dyck. So I think what Reynolds would say is, look how well the features are put together in that drawing on the left-hand side. But, and Van Dyck isn't Franz Hals. He's not sloppy when it comes to the execution. So that drawing gets transferred to the final work on the, on the right-hand side. But there is another stage, not necessarily in every case, but there you, we, we can imagine that um, an artist, once they've used a preparatory uh, technique, will be able to have it in their mind, even if they don't need it for every individual painting, and that is, of course, the oil sketch. And the, the, this is a tiny example for the great piece, a so-called great piece family portrait, which was recently acquired by the Royal Collection and is in the exhibition. It's so small, it's sort of hung as if it's basically part of the label rather than part of the display, but it, it, I think it worked quite well. Uh, the, but the point about oil sketches by Van Dyck and, of course, much more importantly, by Rubens, Van Dyck's master, is that they uh, begin with a neutral brown, scrubby kind of background with a little bit of gray mixed in. And that scrubby background does huge amounts of work. Uh, so you just have to highlight it a little bit or put a little bit of shadow onto it. And that scrubby sort of browny gray thing starts to become a chair or a face or a person. So the, the, I think the basic lesson of the, um, of the oil sketch is um, let the let the underpaint do the work for you as much as possible. 
And then you can see, even in unfinished or sketched Van Dyck portraits, this is a, a portrait study for a group portrait which has been lost. So uh, it, it, its function was just to record the features. And you can see, again, how much the under this li in a slightly lighter here, buff gray background, but how much work it's doing. You can see the rough, uh, the left-hand side of the rough. There's absolutely no description whatsoever. Um, and the, this underpaint area is showing through all over it, and yet the eye is very, very happy to read that rough as a three-dimensional circular form. So, so, so the eye is very, or the brain of the viewer is very happy to supply those things which the artist has withheld. An incredibly important lesson for an artist like Van Dyck or Rubens. Let, let the viewer do the work. Um, and then you can see, I mean, I'm just, just putting in a Rubens for comparison here, how amazingly little Rubens can supply and how amazingly much he can deliver, if you sort of mean. He, he's giving you not very much, but actually it, it's everything you need. If you see the column up on the uh, top left, it's basically just scrub of gray, blue-gray paint, and yet it's a perfectly formed column. You see the chair bottom right. It's basically the underpaint showing through a few sketchy shadows. This drapery on the bottom has almost nothing to distinguish it from the underpaint, and yet we are perfectly satisfied with the image as a complete one. That spirit of economy is, is what one of the things, I think, that would distinguish the peak from the um, Van Dyck. And I've changed, the, there are two versions of the Robert Peake. This is one in the Royal Collection. The, the previous one was in the Metropolitan Museum. They're essentially repeating the same composition. Um, but you can see, in a way, uh, one of the things that has changed in this period is that the, the peak, the painting on the left-hand side, looks as if it has been laboriously finished, starting in the bottom left-hand corner, da -da 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 -da, filling everything, painting everything in, finishing in the top right-hand corner, uh, whereas the... Um, painting on the right-hand side has this um, huge area of brown underpaint which shows through almost throughout the right-hand arc of the painting and kind of does the work for the artist. And I suppose you, you in between these two, you can see that the process of painting has changed from something mechanical and laborious to something magical and... Um, and uh, effortless, that, 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 that's hugely important. If you want, to, I think, to, to see the areas of unfinished, if you took, look right up at the top, uh, at the uppermost branch of uh, frond of um, foliage, uh, you can see that it's actually just underpaint with a couple of leaves picked out. But we don't, we're, we're happy to, to see the, the um, full, uh, the, the sort of, plenitude of what is being suggested um, without having some pedant drawing of relief, like on the left-hand side. Because you know, we've got an imagination. Don't insult us, I think, would be, would be the answer. So that's, I think, one of the elements, that just the, the process of painting. And I think it's hugely important to remember how much people enjoyed watching artists paint at this date. But, um, the king, Charles I, used to travel to Blackfriars to watch Van Dyck painting. You're not going to be interested watching peak painting. It would be very, very dull. But it, you can imagine watching something like that come into being would be a very exciting thing. And this is a, a general thing across the, Europe at this date. Philip IV used to watch Velasquez paint, same type of painter, a sort of conjurer painter rather than a laborer painter. That's one element. Um, I also, I don't know why this slide informs you that this painting was turned down by George III in 1770. That's, uh, it was offered for sale to George III and he failed to buy it. So it could have been in the Royal Collection, so, but we'll <laughs> gloss over that painful fact. Um, now, the, other, the next thing I'd like to say is, is to draw attention to the relationship between um, the old masters in the, Royal, uh, in the Royal Collection at this date and the contemporary works which were being... Uh, commissioned. And this is, I suppose, slightly to contrast the situation in the 1630s with the situation when the Royal Academy was founded in the um, 
60s and 70s, essentially 1770s, when Reynolds' discourses gave an account of what the old masters could teach you, what, where was, what, what was the essential point of the old masters, and everybody agreed that that account was fundamentally at variance with what modern artists were trying to do. So there's a, the, the, it was almost sort of agreed that there was a mismatch between what the old masters taught you and A, what you were required to do as a modern painter, but also the way you might want to do it. And I would want to suggest that at this date there was no such mismatch, that there was a very close relationship between what the old masters were teaching you and what you might want to do yourself if you were Van Dyck. And um, so I'm just quickly looking at the most highly valued works in the... Uh, Royal Collection at this date in, the, in Charles I's collection based on sale prices and the highest value is absolutely without doubt the Raphael Madonna La Perla which sold for a, a cool £2,000 which in, 17, sorry, in 1650 would, might buy you a sort of two up two down somewhere um, and it, I think the interesting thing here is that you can see that Raphael was valued because of those ideal forms which Reynolds would have spoken about, but I would also suggest that at this date Raphael was valued for a depth of shadow and certainly for detail, no question, but it's not mechanical detail like we saw in that peak, it's detail kind of clothed in shadow with fantastic effects of light, uh, you know, streaks of light in the sky, a sort of night effect with, with uh, Joseph top left, very moody and atmospheric. And that valuing of moody and atmospheric I think you see even more clearly in the next most highly valued artist in the collection at this date, Correggio, in these two works valued at uh, £800 and £1,000 respectively, the one on the left in the exhibition, the one on the right in the Louvre, not in the exhibition, where again I think you see detail, richness, uh, texture particularly, but detail beautifully clothed in shadow um, with a sort of moody, poetic, atmospheric um, aura surrounding it, as if you know, the point of an artist is not just to paint the thing, but to paint the, the, the envelope of light and atmosphere which surrounds that thing. Uh, and I also just slightly draw attention on the right-hand side because we'll come on to it later. The relationship, but this is very much a uh, divine and an earthly Venus, divine on the left-hand side with wings, very, very earthly, disturbingly earthly on the right-hand side. Um, but you can see that the, I think, uh, the, the way in which the satyr kind of sinks into the background in uh, tone and, or, and relates in colour, and the way in which you see his hoof it could almost be the trunk of a tree. It's as if it's a natural form that's kind of turned into a satyr. That's, I think, of great significance um, later on. So, but Correggio is getting us this sort of moody, dusky, shadowy thing. And then the other artist who is uh, most highly valued and most significant is, of course, I'm sure you'd all you will know, know is Titian, where you see, uh, I think, the same uh, sort of suggestive way of painting, but here done with a rougher brush, a much more, uh, it's almost like a looser, coarser, deliberately coarser way of painting. But I think two things I'd draw attention to, it's, it's not dissimilar from the Correggio in, in poetic mood, but it's a, two things are, are interesting. It's got a very, very grand and very um, heroic landscape with with a, a, a great amount of space suggested. You can see on the right-hand side, you've definitely got clearly articulated kind of platforms of landscape leading right back to the mountains in the background. It's not just a little bit of atmospheric backdrop. It's a really structured um, landscape, and giving that structure gives you a sense of uh, grandeur and power and you know, extent. Uh, the, the, the first thing I think important. The other thing is the relationship between hunting and romance. This completely baffling subject, the Pardo Venus, but you can see quite clearly it's a combination of a hunting scene on the left-hand side and in the right middle distance and a mythological um, erotic subject with the sleeping Venus and a prying satire, a common enough subject. And um, just sort of continuing the, the, the old master theme, bringing it right up to date, with a painting that hung at Oatland's palace, that hunting palace, and belonged to Anne of Denmark. So it belonged to Charles I's mother. So we assume that it might be a, a, a significant work. Uh, it's Rubens and Snyder's collaboration, Diana and Spidon by Satters. And um, 
the, the, you, I think you can see that sort of continuity of the theme of Titian. But I'd just like to move on using this painting as a sort of um, pivotal point to what might be called the secret language of painting, the way in which meaning can be expressed in a painting which might not be immediately obvious. So, uh, uh, in this case, the subject's reasonably clear. Diana is a huntress, and um, so she gets up with her nymphs at sort of four in the morning and hunts throughout the day, has a whole pile of booty, and when it comes to the heat of the day, she's already done a lot of hunting, so she makes a canopy to shield her from the sun and sleeps because she's tired because of all that hunting she's done. Her dogs, all her attendants are sleeping. Meanwhile, satyrs, who are the laziest beings on God's earth, get up at, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and wander over and spy on them because the whole point of satyrs in classical antiquity is that they are um, very lustful, uh, they're very lazy, um, and they're, they're just thinking only about their stomachs and so on. They're quite fun, they're quite entertaining, uh, and they're very cowardly, so they're not, they're not a threat to anybody. That's the sort of type of the satire. Um, and so they've, they've arrived and, you know, using this opportunity to spy on the nymphs. Um, the, this characterization, you, you can see it expressed with all sorts of uh, devices, pictorial devices. So, for example, the cloak that surrounds the, um, that, that shields the piece of drapery, red drapery that shields the nymphs is a bright red colour, and that colour continues onto the satyrs. They're all red and brown, because they're all hot and lustful, whereas, by contrast, the nymphs are all white and cool in colour, because they're followers of Diana, they're chaste. So you have a, a, a sort of colour coordination of the two parts. And um, this sort of joke is, or um, what, do, what would you call it? part of the point. There isn't anything you call it, but I'll continue. You can see the position of the tree trunk. Is, that is not an accident. That's a very obvious joke. The lustful sapper has got this you know, monster tree trunk in it. Uh, and even you can see that he's got a slightly um, African physiognomy, which again would be sure quite deliberate. Uh, and e e there would be also echoes in the um, way in which the boar's head is dark brown, shaggy, ugly, and is in every way therefore contrasted with the beauty of the women who are smooth, white, white, so on. So you're seeing a kind of um, symbolic use of colour, texture, and everything else. And uh, the, the final example of this is, um, I think, I would suggest, that the, if you look at the figure of Diana herself, she's obviously the main, the main one, she is absolutely white and she is surrounded by a white cloth with a blue cloth underneath. What is Diana what symbolic of or who, what form is symbolic of Diana? Obviously the moon everybody knows. So what colour is the moon? It's silver, it's white and against a blue sky. But you can also see that her form as well as being dazzlingly white and bright is crescent-like. <coughs> she makes a lovely crescent shape. Why? Because she's Diana, she's the moon. Now, I think that uh, I would call this sort of thing, for want of a better, the secret language of art. Th this kind of thing happens all the time. The only problem is there's no word for it. If this were poetry, we would have absolutely no difficulty in saying, what do you call it when somebody makes a figure look like the moon? You call it a metaphor, obviously. Everybody knows that. Uh, or a simile. But there is absolutely no word for the same thing in painting. And that's, I think, brings us back to that remark of Reynolds, as the painters express it. The point is, he, he's saying, you wouldn't know about it because the painters express it. So why is there such a, uh, why are there so many words for things like this in poetry and so few words for them in painting? Why, when you read Vasari or the other Lives of the Artists is the critical vocabulary, for want of a better word, so fantastically poor and meager. You know, Vasari has one good thing to say about a painting, and that is that it's so realistic that you think it's real. That's, that's, his, that's his one critical comment. So this is so real, you think it's real. I mean, yeah, there you go. Uh, but that's true of absolutely every painting. Uh, whereas, you know, in poetry, there, there are so many words. And the answer, why, are there, why is there not this language? 
And I think the answer to that question is reasonably simple, and I won't spend too long on it, because uh, absolutely every educated person learned language and even how to write poetry for thousands of years throughout Europe. You, a standard elite education across Europe, and certainly at this date, was uh, the, the classics, which meant that you learnt the language, Latin and Greek, but it, it meant you learnt the language at a very, very highly sophisticated level. You learnt how to write poetry as well as how to write prose. And even within living memory, uh, if you, somebody I know who read classics at Oxford said that a perfectly ordinary exercise for an undergraduate was to translate Shakespeare sonnets into Greek hexameters. That was an undergraduate did that as a sort of weekly exercise. So uh, let us assume seems that, that that kind of exercise took place amongst an, the educated elite throughout Europe for a couple of thousand years. And that elite would be anybody between the rank of monarch at the top and professional at the bottom. So a medic, a, a priest, or a lawyer would be a sort of professional at the top. And all you know, noblemen, secretaries, diplomats, any, any kind of educated person, they would all receive the same education. That's, a, that's a quite a large number of people. Now, if all those people are learning uh, this very, very highly complicated, sophisticated um, way of working, there is clearly going to be lots of manuals and guides explaining how to do it, which is why if you wish to um, ask about the, um, the, the, the language of poetry, you've got two things that you learn. You first learn Latin grammar to a fantastically sophisticated level, and then you learn something completely different, which is poetic license. You learn all the things that you're allowed to do, which, strictly speaking, are not correct grammar, which are permissible in poetry. Either things to do with the sounds of the words, like alliteration, assonance, rhyme meter, or things which are do with, to do with the meanings of the words, where they mean something not strictly what they say grammatically. Simile, metaphor, transferred epithet, you know, synecdoche, I don't even, you know, oxymoron, like, I can't even remember them all, but you all know there are, there are about 30 uh, so-called rhetorical devices which explain why something is not strictly uh, ac uh, grammatically accurate. There is nothing of that kind in relation to painting. Why? Because um, essentially the elite were not taught to paint. Mechanics were taught to paint. So they, th there was no need to explain how it's done. The language of painting is the, the language of the studio, which really meant workshop. I mean, they like to call it studio, but it meant workshop. So it's a, I think there's a clear sort of, you don't have to know about it. And that's why I think that th this um, these sorts of things were just somehow did not make it to um, our awareness. There's no language to describe it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So, for example, uh, symbolism, that, that's probably the one that does happen. So here we have Van Dyck pointing to a sunflower, and he's holding a chain on his, uh, around his neck, and he, he is saying, this is a royal chain um, which I'm awarded by a monarch, and I am like a sunflower, uh, a sunflower follows the sun, I follow the monarch because I'm a court artist, I turn towards the monarch like a sunflower. So that would be like a simile, that's, that's a reasonably easy symbol. And it also draws attention to something which I wish to come back to, which is the endless um, echo of the relationship between a monarch and the sun or the sky or some divine being. La mia gloria dai celso, same principle, you know, my glory comes from the heavens. So this, this sort of introduces the idea, but when you come into the detail, it gets quite quickly lost. So for example, in the catalogue entry for this painting, um, a colleague of mine said, he looks like his hawk. And the copy editor at the, uh, at the Royal Academy said, well, that's a pretty silly thing to say and cut it out, assuming that it was just like a joke. And um, so he, he came back and said, no, no, I don't mean like, isn't it a joke, he looks like his horse, I mean his hawk. He looks like his hawk because Aristotle said a person who looks like a hawk has a particularly noble disposition. It's not some little accidental thing. And you can see here the, the, that sort of sharp, pointy, slightly slopey eyes, the hooked nose, the thin lips, the turned down eyes. This is absolutely classic hawk-like physiognomy. And Aristotle and any other number of writers on, um, on 
physiognomy, as it was called, explain how human beings have the characteristics of the animals that they resemble. In this case here, on the, there's a, this is a leonine person here, there's a corvine person, there's an aquiline person, respectively. Um, this is, uh, as you can see, Giovanni Battista della Porta, della Fisonomia del Uomo, but um, Aristotle had already said it, and he's only trotting out the same thing as Aristotle said. And I would say quite, uh, just quickly that the um, physiognomy, the science of physiognomy, is, is no different from physiology. It's just bad physiology. And this is true of all sciences in the 17th century. Uh, there, there are, well, the 17th century to the 20th century, there are usually two words for every science, and they both mean exactly the same thing, except one means the quack, quack science and the other means good science. So, you know, you have astronomy and astrology. They're both exactly the same thing. The, the two words just come to mean the, um, the fruitcakes and the scientists. And you have physiognomy, physiology. Again, exactly the same thing. You have alchemy and chemistry. There's, there's, there's no difference except that the words are used to distinguish between the, the duff forms. So when you're talking about physiognomy, you're, you, you're not discussing a face. It's, that, that's an accidental... Um, when people say somebody's physiognomy, meaning their face, that's a sort of false etymology. It means the, their bodies, their entire bodies, which exhibit certain characteristics, um, as it were, moral or... Um, human characteristics depending upon the, their physical makeup. So an aquiline person will not just have an aquiline face, they'll have aquiline hands and feet, um, and they will be king-like and noble. So let's see how this pans out in, in paintings. We see one here. Um, here is Anthony van Dyck, Cardinal Bentivoglio, and he's absolutely classic aquiline. He's got a nice pointy nose, um, overhanging brows, a noble piercing expression, all of which are recommended. And just in case you miss it, he's got a couple of eagles on the back of his chair because he claimed to be descended from the emperor, and an e so eagle is his heraldic attribute, so he's resembling his eagle. Absolutely everybody would have recognized this. Similarly, uh, Benin is David. Uh, nice overhanging brows, great, great thick-knitted brows, um, no lips, they're not very beak-like, but a huge hawk-like nose uh, demonstrates an aquiline physiognomy, he's noble and king-like. And just in case you miss it, on his um, lyre you can see an eagle just to help you along. And surprise, surprise, Borghese's, one of the Borghese coats of arms was an eagle, so it's a nice flattering reference. But here you can see that the whole body is expressing the characteristics of a certain physiognomy because he's very sinewy, very, um, you can see all his veins and his, um, his, his um, shins and everything. He's very sort of thin and taut looking and fiery. That's, that is, that's associated with having a lot of fire in your bowels, being all sinewy, as opposed to being all fat and, and watery. And why? And uh, so this type of physiognomy is associated with an aspiring, energetic, heroic young man with something to prove. Well, obviously David's, David's all those things. But it, 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 it's not just the face. It's, it's absolutely across the whole body, and you can, you can see these contrasts again and again. So, for example, absolutely perfect example here, the um, Van Dyke Cupid and Psyche on the right-hand side, and I'm comparing it to this page like a fiery spirit from a mask. So the figure on the left-hand side is clearly, I mean, is a personification of fire or a fiery spirit. You can see the, the flames and everything. It's just a crazy costume. Exactly the same thing is happening in the depiction of um, Cupid and Psyche on the right-hand side. Uh, Cupid is, um, Psyche is, has, has um, fallen into a death-like slumber, and she is a mortal, and she is going to be revived by the god Cupid. And this is expressed in this painting by two of the elements being associated with um, Psyche and two of the elements being associated with Cupid. So Cupid has fire and air, most obviously fire. Look at his hair leaping up like flames, his orange drapery flapping out like flames. He's on tiptoe, and his wings are all pointed upwards, just like the fiery spirit here. You know, fire goes around on tiptoe, obviously it doesn't plod along. Um, it, it 
whooshes, and she, so he's got fire and air, and he's, that is the animating, vivifying principle. She is all water and earth. You can see she's blue, and she's sort of going blur all over the, uh, she's kind of um, hugging the shape of the hillside with, with um, in a flowing kind of watery way. And she, he's all kind of, you know, thin and nervous, and she's all not exactly fat, but she's not and the, these, the, the, the science physiognomy at this date would make lots of gender distinctions of a kind which, which we would think nonsense. I mean, it's all nonsense, obviously, but it's just uh, interesting in relation to art that, that women are more likely to be moist and, and, um, uh, and earthly and men are more likely to be fiery, you know, this, this kind of stuff. But so you can see absolutely classically expressed this, this contrast. And that is the meaning of the picture, the contrast between the divine animating principle of Cupid and the earthly, uh, inanimate, cold, dead principle of the, um, of, of the figure of Psyche, just like the dead tree. She gets to get a dead tree, he gets to get a living tree. It's a nice piece of symbolism. Um, and just while we're on, you know, we had a little bit of Benini in there. The spirit of the angel is clearly a flame. You can see the pattern of the drapery is exactly like the pattern of flames because St. Teresa describes the figure as like a fiery angel. And she, again, is, is powerless and earthly and not, not you know, the angels all, all, all of fire. She is, she is all, as, not exactly asleep, but sort of, uh, you know, whatever happens when you're not capable of do, doing anything because of religious ecstasy. Um, and so the, this, I think these are the sort of principles that I'm, uh, that would animate painting, and in a way, I think we find it easier to talk about them when we're uh, drawing attention to the parallel science, the science of physiognomy. You know, I could read you the text that say, what is a person like if he's made up of, a, of, of the element of fire? What's more difficult is to appreciate the type of process by which a painter does it, the way that he makes the figure of Cupid look like fire and the figure of um, Psyche look like um, Earth, and this is again where poetry has the advantage. So you know, when Cleopatra says, "I am fire and air, my other elements I give to baser life," we know that it's exactly something similar. She is shedding her earthly things and, and, and seeking out her divine things, just as Cupid is. Uh, but we also know that that is a metaphor. We don't have any difficulty in understanding the poetic device that gets us to that point but we don't have a word for metaphor when it applies to paintings. And so that, with that in mind, I'm just quickly going to look at portraits and the ways in which you could express ideas. The most obvious way, which of course we do know, is through allegorical personification. So here, Rubens, a question, portrait of the Duke of Buckingham with uh, presumably an auspicious wind blowing him and a river god, or no, Neptune here adoring and some other figure. Very standard, we, we, we know how these work. But uh, when it, uh, the, something similar also comes in medals, also always associated with, with words. I think everybody is, is, is happier with words. So here, this is a, a medal showing Charles I returning to London, 1633, and it says, Sol Orbem Redien Sic Rexi Luminat Urbem. And I think that is probably um, in verse, that. Yes, it's in verse. So, you know, it, it, it's natural to, to think poetically. Uh, as the um, the sun returns to the earth, so the king illuminates the world. Um, the city, sorry, Orbem, or the orb of the world, and then Orbem, the city. And there's a depiction of London with the sun breaking through the clouds. And I'm suggesting here that the sun is essentially the image uh, that we're looking at, and it's one that you can see repeated again and again in poetry. So, for example, um, Prince Hal says, yet herein will I imitate the sun, which doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up its beauty from the world, etc. And um, again, even perhaps even more famous, the description in Milton of Satan, who is uh, not entirely un lost all his glamour, but appears as when the sun new risen looks through the horizontal misty air shorn of his beams. And it actually goes on rather interestingly. Um, 
or from behind the moon in dim eclipse, disastrous twilight sheds on half the nations, and with fear of change perplexes monarchs. So you can see the, the idea of an eclipse being something which would uh, if, uh, frighten kings. So what I'm suggesting is that the idea of the sun, heavenly bodies, however subtly or obliquely, is one that um, a portrait painter would wish to associate with a king. And I think we can see it here. Two examples on the right-hand side is the um, uh, Titian portrait of the Emperor Charles V, where he is clearly associated in color and light with a stormy red uh, uh, light in the background. So it's like a, this is really like the sun in eclipse with fear of change perplexes monarchs, and it's a really threatening kind of um, image of light. On the, right, on the left-hand side, Van Dyck, question portrait Charles I in the National Gallery. I think you can see the same relationship between his face and the, the coming out of the darkness of the trees, um, reflecting the character of the light of the background, but in a much more um, calm and serene fashion. I think we're, we're, um, we're looking at essentially this image of the equestrian figure, like the light of the sun lighting up the world, but just more suggestively um, conveyed. And I suppose my point is that th that process of suggestively conveying something, we, we would recognize it instantly if it were a poem, but we'd, we'd just see that it was a metaphor or, or a, um, uh, just the faintest illusion would pick it up. But when it comes in paintings, we, we do it less because we don't really have a word for it. And that really brings me back to this one because you can see so clearly in my view, the difference between those elements that um, Cleopatra drew attention to. The right-hand side is so earth and water, particularly earth. You can see the colors, the patterns, the fact that it's mostly, that it's got a lot of underpaint showing in through, uh, the fact that it's all about horses and attendants and, you know, trees and mud and plants and such, uh, make it so much the baser elements. Uh, whereas the king uh, is so clearly belonging to the patch of light in the sky. So he's so clearly the, the element of air and fire. And you can then see so many rhymes or metaphors or similes, whatever word you would want to use, between the, uh, him and the sky, between the color of his face, his hand, and his trousers, and the red sunset in the background, and between the silvery patterns of light on his coat and the silvery patterns of light in the sky in the background. And I think that's, um, in a way, you, you can talk about the, the, the understated narrative that gets you from there to there. You can, um, you can talk about the, perhaps, a, a technique of painting which which is more evolving and less painstaking. But I think you've also got to add another element, which is a kind of uh, equivalent of poetry, something which, which um, uses metaphor, which uses rhyme, um, perhaps even uses alliteration, you know, assonance, you know, words which sound the same, things which look the same, uh, which uses all these things for which we have no vocabulary uh, in order to um, create something which is kind of completely elegant and memorable and effortless and makes this look so plodding and painstaking. Okay, thanks very much. We do want to take a couple of questions. I noticed... Uh, in the coin, yes. that the four legs of the horse were off the ground. Was this an allusion to the um, the the uh, um, Lipizzana horses, uh, and that was very much in fashion at the time? I'm sure that's I'm sure that's right. I'm I'm not very good at horses. I, I should be in my job, I know, but it's a deficiency I'm painfully aware of. I mean, people have done work about the. Um, on the whole, you know, menage and different positions of horses, demonstrating how um, equestrian portraits people would have recognised particular, uh, you know, movements and so on. 
but I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone, I'm afraid, when it comes to that. But I'm sure you're right that that's the case. Thank you very much. You talked about the deficiency in the English language of figures of speech. Yes. I just wondered whether other languages, Italian, French, might have some way of making up that deficiency. Uh, it's not a deficiency of the English language at all, a deficiency of language when discussing painting. This is not a, 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 an English thing at all. All those words, metaphors, da, 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 absolutely universal in every language, and uh, obviously deriving originally from the Greek. Uh, the paucity of vocabulary when describing paintings at this date, pretty much universal. I mean, if you, if you were, um, I mean, even, uh, uh, I'm trying to think what one phrase that gets repeated a lot in Italian used about um, paintings is morbidezza, softness. So, okay, there, there they've got that's <laughs> a quality, uh, as opposed to um, you often hear of works being called dry and hard, as opposed to soft or um, just soft, I think. But that, that's a, okay, that's a quality that can be distinguished. That, and um, I mean, Vasari, for example, when write, uh, the introduction to the High Renaissance says that um, people got their anatomy right in the early Renaissance, but they just looked like um, bags of radishes, the, um, the muscles. And then Leonardo came along and added grace and softness. So the muscles are still there, but they don't, they don't look like radishes anymore. So there, okay, that's a, that's a quality. And certainly, um, if, you, if anybody was describing Correggio, softness would be their word, morbidezza would be the, like, like amoretti morbido, you know, those nice soft ones as opposed to the crunchy ones. But it's not, it's not the same as a list of 40 figures of speech. I think that's the thing that's de deficient. I was interested in the, uh, the satyrs and, and diner. Yes. I mean, th you know, th these women are hunters. You know, they spend a lot of time running around in the forest hunting, and yet their bodies are still represented as if they'd been sitting around at home Completely. knitting. Um, yeah. And I, I seem that's, you know, I mean, obviously Rubens does that more than any artist. I mean, uh, Van Dyck's not quite as bad, but it is an extraordinary kind of failure of to, rep rep to recognize um, well, the, the, what, what they are supposed to be. Yes, I mean, I think it's a... Um, well, you're, they're, they're divine beings, so they get to look how they like, I think. It's, uh, it's, you know, you're, you're, but um, certainly, I mean, obviously, the, the conventions of art, as the conventions of poetry, are, are very far from being literal-minded. Yeah. They, they don't correspond to anything in yeah. reality. I think the... Um, what I w w slightly want to draw, draw attention to is that there's more sort of thought in setting the scene than, than we sometimes give an artist credit for. You know, the, he's got the time of day right, the evening's come, they've been sleeping all day. You know, the, the, um, the qualities of light, qualities of atmosphere are quite carefully thought out. Um, but they're always within the conventions of basically classical literature which tells you that Diana's followers have got very, very, very white skin. <laughs> and satyrs are all shaggy and dark and, you know, da -da -da, lustful and all the other things. Comic, too. Satyrs are comic. I think we, people miss satyrs come in comedies because they're, they're not threatening things. They're absurd things. So when you, when you see a painting like that, I think that's... Or often you see satyrs attacking nymphs, and they're not, they're not going to get anywhere. They're just like... They're, you know, they're like dogs chase, chasing cats. You know, the minute the cat turns around, the dog sort of skulks off again. I think it's quite understood that that's a guess. And it, yeah. Um, if I may. Thank you. At home, I have a painting. I have a photograph of it here, said by my restorer to have been over 200 years old. And I just wondered how it was that copies might be made of originals such as this. I'd love to know where my painting originated. I'm not uh, sure well, we can answer that. Uh, but the, Not a lot of copies of this because it left the collection. But I mean, the more famous images endlessly copied for hundreds of years. Um, how did they originate? Well, uh, from the studio of the artist straight away. I mean, so the, 
you do it and your studio is already doing another version of it. Um, the job title of the surveyor of the Queen's Picture is my job title, which was written in 1625. One of the duties was permitting copies to be made. So that, um, the, 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 just, you know, handling the permission, getting the artist to come and see the work and copy it. So I think that's a, uh, this would be a pretty, but pr probably a central part of imagery of this kind. I mean, not in this case, because it never kind of found a home, but if we were looking at the, um, you know, the, the, the other equestrian portrait of the five eldest children, I think the understanding would be that copies would be made and therefore this imagery would disseminate through the country as the, the kind of official image of the king. You can also, of course, have prints, but, the, but painted copies are probably more important than prints at, at the date we're talking about. And equally important. There's that, there are only a couple of prints commissioned, one of which is that Van Forst print of the king handing the laurel crown to the queen, quite, quite significant painting. But there are just squillions of painted copies. You can see how, I think you can see how that's part of the kind of dissemination of the imagery. Um, I'm afraid we're all out of time, but I just want to thank you all for coming. Um, I would just like to thank Desmond for a wonderful talk and a great exhibition. So thank you. <laughs>